the last word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. Now for today's Culture Club, we are joined by one of the great Irish novelists, a man who has an enormous body of work, both under his own name, but also under a pseudonym of Benjamin Black, in which he has done crime fiction. But John Vanville is also back with his new novel called Snow. And before I talk to him about his choices for the Culture Club, I do want to ask him about this new novel, because is this almost in some respects a hybrid between a John Banville literary event and a Benjamin Black crime novel? Well, you see, I killed off Benjamin Black. I got tired of him. And uh, so he's gone. You know, I... I these books are quite good. I, I, why am I hiding behind a pseudonym? Indeed. So and it allows you to continue indulging your love of crime fiction, though, does it? Yeah, it does. And, you know, I hate the notion of genre. I hate notions of being crime fiction and this new thing that's been invented in my time, literary fiction. Literary fiction is always put into a, a, a corner in the bookshop and it may as well have a sign on it saying, don't come near this, you don't need this stuff. <laughs> They're just good. They're just good writing and writing that, that isn't so good. That's you know, if I ran a bookshop, it would be done completely in alphabetical order. There would be no labels. Even between fiction and non-fiction and cookery yeah. and all the other books. Yeah, just good writing. I always tell this story. Look, my wife and I finally got to afford a, a dishwasher years ago. The manual, the instruction manual for the dishwasher, was written in beautiful, crisp clear, clean English. Uh, you know, good writing happens anywhere. I remember reading it with great enjoyment. It was even witty in places. It said things like, you know, well, obviously your dishwasher could use all the help it can get, so scrape most of the butter off the plates. You know, I mean, it was beautifully written. You see the point I'm making? That I, I just, I hate the notion of there being, that there's a high genre. There's a wonderful marginal note in one of um, um, Darwin's notebooks, where he just has written very. I've seen it in very small handwriting. He just says, "Never say high or low." And I think that's a good, you know, that's 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 a good thing. Don't say high or low. There isn't high or low. It's just stuff that that that, that is good and. And is well written and is, is written with passion and care. And the stuff that isn't written with passion and care, and we don't have to read that. But you're not afraid either, John, I have to say, to entertain your readers, are you? I mean, there are some, and I know you don't like the label literary fiction writers, but there are some writers who are possibly more interested in the quality of the prose rather than telling a rollicking good tale which will entertain their readers. Well, James Joyce's Ulysses is a rollicking good tale. It has surprises. It has uh, all kinds of things, beginning, middle, and end. Even Finnegan's Wake at the beginning, middle, and end. It depends what you're entertained by. Nobody, you know, people go on to me about art and literature, and I say, you know, many people don't need art or literature. Many people, for instance, get their sense of beauty from sport, football or something, or nature itself, you know, you don't have to be, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not an exclusivist, I mean, I'm not. When we asked you to nominate your favourite book or writer, sometimes, particularly when we have writers with us, they give us long lists rather than actually picking out one thing. But you've actually picked out very quickly for us, Henry James, The Portrait of a Lady. Why did you pick that book and author out? 
Well, Henry James is the greatest novelist. I think that's pretty well uncontested. Um, if you measure it, you know, book by book, he is the greatest novelist. Uh, which doesn't make him the greatest writer or the greatest artist, but as novelist, he is greatest. And The Portrait of a Lady is absolutely wonderful. I mean, it started out uh, in an adversarial state because he wanted to write the opposite of George Eliot's Middlemarch. He wanted to show how it should be done. Uh, but of course, he got carried away and did this wonderful portrait of this wonderful lady. It's a very interesting book because when you read it when you're young, which I did, when I was in my 20s, discovered afterwards I was reading it in a hotel in Florence. It was just around the corner from where Henry James started to write it. Nice coincidence. But it's a wonderful portrait of a young woman uh, trying herself against the world. Uh, it's full of gaiety. It's full of sly humor. Uh, a wonderful story. wonderful portrait of evil in uh, The Man She Marries. Uh, Henry James knew all about evil, so, you know, <laughs> as they use the world, used to say, all human life is there. What more could you ask? Well, we actually have a clip from the audiobook of The Portrait of Lady. Let's hear it. She was virtually separated from her husband, but she appeared to perceive nothing irregular in the situation. It had become clear, at an early stage of their community, that they should never desire the same thing at the same moment— and this appearance had prompted her to rescue disagreement from the vulgar realm of accident. She did what she could to erect it into a law, a much more edifying aspect of it, by going to live in Florence, where she bought a house and established herself, and by leaving her husband to take care of the English branch of his bank. This arrangement greatly pleased her. It was so felicitously definite— now, we're using the audio version, given that we're on radio, but do you have any liking for audiobooks, John, or would you... Oh, God, I uh, love them. I do love you? them. Uh, well, audiobooks were very much involved in the death of Benjamin Black because I was writing a sequel to one of the Benjamin Black books, which meant I had to go back and read a couple of them. And I, to read my own work makes me physically sick. Um, so I hit on the splendid idea of listening to them in audiobooks. Uh, and I've listened to a couple of them, read by Timothy Dalton, wonderful actor, wonderful actor who survived being James Bond. Uh, and he reads them in his Welsh accent, doesn't matter. Um, because I'm an insomniac, I was listening to them in the dark. And because he was reading them, I could be distanced from them. And I was able to look at them from, from the outside. And I, that's when I thought these are not bad at all. So kill off that. that that scoundrel, Benjamin Black, and right under my own name. Uh, I love audiobooks. I, I, I think they're wonderful. Um, Juliet Stevenson, for instance, is one of the great readers, uh, one of the great actors, which is a superb reader of long, long fiction. So audiobooks is a great gift, great gift of our time, I think. Far better than, you know, the other so-called social media I'm really interested you say that, though, given that you spent so long as literary editor of the Irish Times up until about 1999, I think, and you must have read during your lifetime thousands upon thousands of books. So for you to declare that love for the audiobook is an interesting thing because it just strikes me, do you not lose concentration when you're listening to a book rather than reading it? Yeah, there is a problem that you fall asleep and you have to 
go back an hour and a half to get get the plot. Uh, of course, it's a subgenre. Uh, nothing replaces the book. The book is one of the most beautiful objects that we've invented as a species. Uh, you know, it sits there in your hand. It's it's warm, lovely, multifarious thing. Uh, you can lose yourself in it. You're sitting reading a book, um, grey afternoon, and you're with the characters, and you lose yourself, and the characters become absolutely real. I mean, it's, it's pure magic. You know, it, novels, no matter how serious, no matter how great, always appeal to that childish side of us that wants to be told a story. We are all, even when we're in our 90s, we're still children going to bed and wanting a story to be told to us. You did nominate a second writer when we asked you for book or author, Samuel Beckett, Ilseen Ilsaid. Why did you pick that? Fintan O'Toole wrote a wonderful piece a few years ago about Beckett and about the fact that uh, one of his girlfriends had died uh, in, in her old age. And then it was, out of that, he began to write about women, which he hadn't really done before, except for Happy Days. I'm not sure the woman in Happy Days is a woman. But this is so tender, so beautiful, full of warmth and forgiveness, forgiveness for the world and for himself. I think it was a big change for Beckett to realize that he could be tender. He always was tender, but he felt somehow this would, you know, wasn't scar enough. But in the scene, I said, he, now look, it's not an easy book to read. It's very short. And it has its own rhythm. I read it four times, I think, uh, before I got it. And do you know how I got it? I was on the dart coming on the house from Dublin. And it was a very crowded dart. And because I was so distracted, I was able to read it. You know how sometimes you need distraction in order to get to the centre of something? And I suddenly got the rhythm. And with Beckett, it's always to do with rhythm. And suddenly, the, the, it opened like a flower. Suddenly, I saw how to do it, how to read it. And I saw all the riches in it. So, and as I say, it's not easy, but it is really worth having a go at. You also nominated Beckett for your favourite play. Tell us what it is. Uh, well, it's beginning to end, and I'm not sure that it's a... It's a play, really. It's a performance by Jack McGowan of selections from Beckett. I think Beckett made the selections himself, or at least if Jack McGowan did, he did it with Beckett's approval. I saw it in the gate in the 1960s, one-man show, uh, an astonishing performance by McGowan, who, you know, had his problems, his, his depression and his drink and so forth. But that night was electric, just electric. And the wonderful thing about Bacon is, like all Irish writers, of course, because he's so fascinated by rhythm, that to hear it read, uh, you don't get everything from it. Of course, you miss a great deal, but you get the rhythm, you get the music, uh, you get the, 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 the audible beauty of the thing. We actually have a clip which we found on YouTube of Jack McGoran in Samuel Beckett's Beginning to End. I shall not watch myself die. That would spoil everything. Have I watched myself live? Have I ever complained? <laughs> and why rejoice now? I am content, necessarily. 
but not to the point of clapping my hands. I am satisfied. There, I have enough. I am repaid. I need nothing more. Let me say before I go any further that I forgive nobody. I wish them all an atrocious life and then the fires and ice of hell and in the execrable generations to come an honoured name. I usen to need anyone just to myself. Stories. Years and years of stories till the need came on me for someone to listen to me. Anyone, a stranger to be near me. Imagine he hears me, what I am now. Jack McGoran, in beginning to end. Isn't that wonderful? I'm, I'm glad you found that section. I wish them more an atrocious life, and the fires and ice of heaven, and the execrable generation to come, an honoured name. That's a wonderful Beckett joke. Movies, you have picked as your favourite movie an adaptation from the great Graham, ne- Graham Greene novel The Third Man, starring Orson Welles. Why so? Oh, I think it's the greatest movie ever made. Well, look, greatest middle ground, middle brown movie ever made. I mean, it's not an art film. It didn't set out to be. I think it has everything in it. It has mystery. It has wit. It has superb performances. It has... That awful music, which is, you know, it's the original mind worm, and just you, you can't get rid of it. Uh, and it's, it's, and it catches a time after the war when the world was on its knees, and it says, get up, get up off your knees. Now, the wickedness of the Orson Welles character, because of course we're drawn to him, he's Milton's Lucifer, he's, he's the devil incarnate. But goodness, he's charming. And, you know, why would the devil come back as anything other than, than charming? I always have the opinion that Pope John Twenty-Third was the devil because he came back and charmed us all and destroyed the church. <laughs> You'll probably cut that bit out. No, we won't. We won't cut anything out. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. In fact, I'm just going to ask you, what do you mean by destroying the Catholic Church? Well, he, he made it, uh, he, he took the mystery out of it. Uh, I remember my my mother was devout Catholic. Uh, when she went to the first of these uh, these new masses, you know, where you the priest was facing you and you turned and shook hands, and <laughs> she said, "This barely woman beside me, she turned to me and shook." And I said to her, "Will you leave me alone, for Christ's sake?" <laughs> All the mystery was gone. Okay, that let's actually hear. That was when the rod set in for the turn. Let's hear a clip from The Third Man featuring Orson Welles. I wish I'd asked you to bring me some of these tablets from home. Holly, I'd like to cut you in, old man. There's nobody left in Vienna I can really trust, and we've always done everything together. When you make up your mind, send me a message. I'll meet you any place, any time. And when we do meet, old man, it's you I want to see. Not the police. Remember that, won't you? <laughs> Don't be so gloomy. I thought about that awful. Well, what the fellow said, mentally for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. <laughs> 
great line. We need yeah, to take well, a break. Well, well, it's always insistent that he had improvised that speech himself. It's disputed, but uh, he would be capable of it. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It is indeed. I want to talk to you about television. Given that you read so much, do you have much time for television? Oh, I love television. I love uh, the cinema. Um, I think I think the movies are the people's poetry. The notion that, I mean, when I was young, the Savoy Cinema held 2,400 2, people. One movie, one screen. 2,400 people watching this, somebody's dream, drifting across this blank screen. Pure magic. I really you didn't want... have much television as a child, though, did you? No, we didn't have television until I was about 16, I suppose. We did have a television, but all we got on it was blizzards, you know, behind which you could see blizzards of static. I've since learned that that static is, in fact, cosmic rays from outer space. Isn't that wonderful? You're sitting there watching that stuff. It's cosmic rays. But no, we we and then RTE came, and of course, this was a great, this is a great moment in our lives. Uh, and I remember, who was it, Oliver J. Flanagan, or one of those great liberal politicians in the time, <laughs> insisting there was no sex in Ireland until the coming of television. And I sort of understand what he meant, you know. Sex before television was, you know, your duty to procreate. After that, suddenly there was a notion of fun. Television brings fun. And it made the Irish discontent, and it set in train the great renaissance that we had in the 1990s when we cast off the yoke of the church and said, we are free human beings. We can, you know, we can have our own lives. Then we started making money, at least we thought we did. 2008, we discovered there wasn't any money there at all. But we, you know, we we started to live. So television's a lot to be said for it. But I love working on the screen. I love writing scripts. One has to you, write. You were involved yeah. in Riviera, weren't you, for a while? I was, yeah. yeah Neil and I started up Riviera with Paul McGuinness. And we had great fun, great fun. We were always a bit pear-shaped, but that's what happens. That's what happens in the movies. You know, there's so much money involved in it. I mean, but so but it's, not a thir- it's not a third series now, John. Have you any involvement in that or do you watch it now? No, 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 I don't. I don't. Um, I don't. I, I, it would be hard for me to watch because, of course, we set up an entirely different uh, direction for it to go. It went the direction it had to go in. I don't feel any... Uh, I feel a certain nostalgia for... You know, Paul McGuinness and Neil and I went down to Paul's wonderful house and just outside Nice to hammer out a way to do this. And it was a magical week or two. I have no regrets at all. But then it didn't work out as you'd hoped it would work out. Well, it worked out the way it worked out. I mean, you know, making a movie, making a television series... There's so much involved in it. You forget watching a scene on television or on the screen. You know, you see two or three actors there in this intense scene. You forget that around them there's about 40 or 50 people, cameramen and lighting men and people with microphones on the end of enormous sticks and so on. It's, it's, I remember John Borman saying to me 
I talked about one of the movies I'd written the script for, and I said, you know, didn't he succeed? And he said, the vast majority of films don't succeed. It's amazing that some of them do. And he's right. You know, it's a very difficult medium. I mean, what I would like to have been, I would love to have been one of those hack screenwriters in the 1940s, living in a little bungalow in the Hollywood Hills, banging away at my typewriter. The producer comes in and says, listen, kid, we want these two scenes uh, by six o'clock and they better be good. They better be funny, right? They better be sexy. I would love to, you know, and the terror of having to do those scenes by six o'clock, that would have been a real thrill. But what about the brilliant life maybe for writers now with television? If you're on something like writing uh, Better Call Saul or uh, Succession or many of the many brilliant series that are there now, wouldn't they be a dream for a writer to be on? Yes, that's a wonderful thing that's happened in television, that it has become a writer's medium. Um, I'm at the moment developing a couple of television things. <laughs> I'm not developing them. I'm writing the developers, I'm writing for the developers, and I hope uh, some of them succeed. I would love to be in one of those series. Uh, I think, I mean, you know, I think The Sopranos is superb. I think it's the great uh, novel, the great middle brown novel of the 20th century. I watch it again and again. And I, you you know, I mean, that series Bloodline, which nobody much seems to like. I thought it was Bloodline, which is set in the Florida Keys. It has Sam Shepard and oh god, I've forgotten her name. I've that bit. Um, well, actually, I was just about yeah. I was just about to ask you about Bloodline. Sorry, I was just about to ask you. And what we're going to do is, while you think of the names of people, I'm going to play the trailer for the Netflix series Bloodline. Good. I always thought the greatest thing that happened to me was being born a Rayburn. Forty-five years ago this weekend, me and my Sally opened the doors to this place. Sometimes you know something's coming. I'd like to say a few words about my kids. You feel it in the air. There's Meg, my sunshine. You don't sleep at night. There's Kevin, my youngest son. The voice in your head's telling you something is going to go terribly wrong. And, of course, there's John, who decided to take care of the whole damn island. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Last but not least is my oldest, Danny. That's how I felt when my brother came home. Kyle Chandler, I think the main actor in it as well, Ben Mendelsohn, Linda Cardellini. Uh, yeah, it's, an, it's, it's you're the first person, John, to have picked that out as a favourite TV show for the Culture Club. Well, I would recommend people to go back and find it. it it's, it's dark. It's beautifully written. It's superbly acted. And there's a scene in, I think maybe it's the last episode or the second last episode, which Sissy Spacek tells her, children what she really thinks of. And you know, it's it's as good as Greek tragedy and it's as good as Sopranos. It's just absolutely superb piece of acting and a superb piece of casting and a superb piece of writing. Just 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 masterpiece, I think. 
Okay, well, I'm going to take your recommendation. I'm looking for a new series to go and uh, watch, and I'm going to take that one up. We better get, we're running out of time, and we haven't even touched music yet. So you've nominated Paul Simon's Graceland as your favourite album. Why so? Well, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's a masterpiece. I think he's one of the great musical figures of our time. Uh, his his musicality is extraordinary. Uh, the songs and the music are just uh, ravishing. I think my problem with it is that it's 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 of a piece. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a, a thing in itself. But it hasn't got what I think is his greatest song, one of the greatest songs of the 20th century, which is Darlene Louise. Darlene Louise is about, I don't know, three and a half, four minutes long. There's a, there's a John Opdyke novel contained in that. It is absolutely masterful. Darlene Louise, listen to it. It's a superb thing. We don't have that, but we do have from Graceland Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. Oh, yeah, isn't that wonderful? The rhythm in that is wonderful. On the soles of the shoes. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the soles of the shoes. She was physically forgotten, but then she slipped into my pocket with my car keys. She said, You're taking me for granted because I please you. Wearing these diamonds. And I could say, as if everybody knows what I'm talking about, as if everybody here would know exactly what I was talking about. I'm talking about diamonds on the soles of the shoes. Paul Simon and the Graceland album, Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. Best gig you were ever at. You have nominated the piper Willie Clancy at the Tradition Club from back in the 1960s. Why so? I think he was there. I hope he was. Willie Clancy is one of the greatest musicians ever. Um, You know, the the Ellen Pipes are... I remember doing a BBC programme about my favourite piece of music and I said, I caught my... My cat's tail in the refrigerator door last night, and the squeal it let out was a bit like the Ellen pipes. And I heard somebody the other day talking about playing the Ellen pipes, being like wrestling with a goat. And to be able to produce superb music out of that strange instrument, Willie Clancy, uh, I don't like the word genius, but let's apply it here. He was a great genius. All the tragedy of Ireland's history, all the gaiety of Ireland's history is in that man's playing. Utterly superb. We have a little bit of Willie Clancy from the Sligo Flakeol in 1963. Let's hear it. So there you have it, John Banville, Willie Clancy from 1963. And I tell you, the, 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 the 
The tune of his that I would listen to, if you can, is called The Dear Irish Boy. It is heartbreakingly beautiful. Heartbreakingly beautiful. And again, as I say, all of Irish history is distilled in that, that one piece of music. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. So we haven't got to go to the Bush Quartet playing Beethoven's String Quartet number 12, as we had planned. And we didn't get a chance to talk about your favourite podcast, West Cork, which has been nominated by many of the, the, the inductees to the Culture Club here in the last word in Today FM. But John Banville, it has been great fun talking to you and hearing of your selections. Thank you so much for joining us here on the programme this evening. Enjoy it immensely. Thanks very much. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Listen live on air from 4.30 weekdays on Today FM.